Hi everyone, just a brief introduction for this week's sermon. In the middle of the message, I gave some statistics on the agrarian tax in the first century. And uh, Bruce, a sparker here locally in Palo Alto, came up to me afterwards and mentioned to me that I did my math wrong. And the conclusion that I made uh, regarding 83% tax is actually incorrect in the way that I did the calculation. I wanted to share that with you, number one, to make sure that that correction was stated. But I wanted to share that with you because it also exemplifies in my mind the beauty of the collective community of Spark. Uh, Bruce knows far more about mathematics uh, and economic calculations than I do. And so I very much appreciated him sharing And I wanted to make sure that I said that uh, both publicly to honor him, but also to encourage the entirety of the Spark community to contribute to the lessons and the learnings that we have. I did ask him, however, uh, whether or not the statement immediately after um, the agrarian tax helped to substantiate the point of the burden of tax. And he did affirm that the list that is listed after I mentioned the calculation of the agrarian tax, the list by Josephus of the various taxes that were collected, which some scholars believe add up to 90%, does substantiate the point that I was trying to make, even though my math was wrong on the original point. So anyway, with that, uh, here is this week's message. Thanks. Today we're just going to do an introduction, and I don't think it's very complicated to say why. Are we doing a series entitled Jesus Economics? And I will share with you very transparently um, that the beginning stages of this conversation began because of a reality that every single one of you who live in the Silicon Valley already know, and you don't know it, you know it. You feel it, you experience it every day. You have, it's probably perhaps the number one piece of conversation that you have when you're talking to anybody outside of Silicon Valley, uh, when you're talking to friends and relatives and neighbors who live across the nation. We are living in one of the most uh, amazing economic situations probably in the history of the world. I mean, like I haven't done all of the history, but it's really incredible to consider the amount of wealth that is being generated and the amount of disparity that is also happening. And so the beginning of this series, or the idea of this series, came with all of these questions that we're asking. And um, the, the most difficult one, I think, for, for me is, what in the world, how in the world does somebody who follows Jesus, who is attempting to live out the way of Jesus and build out the kingdom of God, all this stuff that we're talking about, the things that we care about, that gospel justice and compassion and mercy, how does that actually live and thrive when you're living in a 400-square-foot, $3 million home, right? It's like, how do you do that? What does that look like? What does that mean? And for those of you who are still here, who are renting and trying to make it, um, the daunting task of even thinking about possibly laying down roots in this area, especially if you're from the outside, it's virtually impossible, so that's where the, the series kind of emerged out of these deep questions about how do we live out the way of Jesus in this reality? Um, and so obviously there's no way that we're going to be able to answer, answer that question. We don't do that at Spark a lot anyway. We pose problems and questions and say, okay, now you go figure this out. Um, so we obviously aren't going to get there. But we do want to be diligent in asking some deep questions about what really are the teachings of Jesus, first of all. So we want to get back to the teachings of Jesus, get back to the way in which Jesus lived and taught, 
And then we can extrapolate or move forward into our current context what those values and those ethics and those redemptive trajectories might actually mean. Because I hope to share with you today that the world of Jesus from a socioeconomic standpoint may actually not be terribly different from the one in which we're living in. We think it's unique. I said it at the very beginning, like never in the world has this happened. And I kind of lied to you because the economic situation, according to the data that we have of history and archaeology, it's pretty incredible what first century Palestinians, Jews, Syrians, Romans, etc., what they were living under. And the movement of Jesus emerged into that world and became what it is today. So asking the question, what was the world that they lived in, how did they live, and how did they think about things economically, might give us a really good starting point for how we are to live today. Now, there's a problem with saying anything about anything, and we've been on a long journey about saying a lot of things about a lot of things. But here's the problem with saying anything about anything is that you can't say everything. The problem is there are, there's so much with every single issue that we cover, every single challenge, every single piece. There's just so much. And so, as always, we hope that the conversation from what we do on Sundays just continues on in your own respective areas. I want to say at the top that it is my vocation and my responsibility as a pastor of this church to prepare and to think and to study and to share my thoughts. But... I want to use that platform to say there are some really amazing and brilliant people in our congregation. And the conversations, I've said this before, the conversations that I've had with many of you and the thoughts that you have, the reflections that you have, the study that you have are really uh, rich and wonderful and insightful, paradigm shifting. And so I hope that you don't uh, neglect the resource, which is one another and how you all think and how you all process. So because we can't say everything, here are a couple things I want to say that we're not going to say. We are not going to enter into an argument about whether or not capitalism is Christian or socialism is Christian. We're not going to do that. We're not going to get into an argument as to what particular economic theory best, best matches the way that God sets it up. We're, that's far too complicated. It's far too um, almost arrogant to even presuppose. There's so many complications with that. So I want to make sure at the outset, we're not going to say any of those things. We're not going to dig into the weeds of economic theory, especially in the modern day. The second thing that we're not going to say is that you, if you get this right, God will bless you. And if you give me a lot of money as your pastor, God will really bless you because I'll be flying my Cessna or my jet or whatever it is. And I need to say, Cessna, that's not a very, what am I saying? Cessna? That, never mind. I, I, you, you can already tell I have no idea what I'm talking about when it comes to planes. <laughs> Unfortunately, when it comes to finances, economics, and money, I want to be absolutely clear that within the context of the church, this topic has been used and abused. And it is, we, I, for those of you who have been around Spark for like all seven years, we have not done one series on giving to the church and why you should do it. And the part, maybe that's neglect. I don't know. We can debate that or not. But one of the reasons I will share personally for me is because of this. I've had way too much of this in my background. And I, I know that as soon as I mention the word money or giving within the context of those of you who have experienced the abuse of that, it just reaps all sorts of memories and this negative peace. And so 
We've been very, very cautious not to go there, and we want to be very, very cautious in this particular series as well. So we're not going to say those things, and we're also not going to cajole you into giving more money and, and making sure we're not going to get into your pocketbooks and say, well, because you make this amount of money, you should be giving over this. And that actually, fascinatingly enough, still happens to this day where people are um, very forthcoming as to what a good Christian should give. Um, we're going to be very careful and not go down that route. Here's what we are going to say. We are very much like what Pastor Daniel was sharing earlier about our engagement with gospel justice, which is a term that, that she shared at the very beginning of our development, all of this that I absolutely love, gospel justice. What we are going to say is that our community is centered around one ultimate idea, to inspire you and others and as many people as are willing to listen to actually live in the way of Jesus, as we have identified through our core values. That is what we are going to say. We are going to say that what we are doing is following in the way of Jesus. And following in the way of Jesus, my friends, has economic implications. Because if we're going to talk about the way of Jesus, as we've talked about before, it is not so heavenly-minded that it's no earthly good. Economics is an on-the-ground reality for all of us and for the entire world. It's how the world actually works. So if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we have to ask some deep questions as to what the way of Jesus actually means when it comes to economic systems and structures and dynamics. We're also going to say that all the work that we have been doing over the past several years, whether it's immigrants and refugees, whether it's race and ethnicity, whether it's gender equality, or even, as we're going to talk about in our Deuteronomy series in just a couple weeks, climate change in the environment, whether it's any of these things, guess what? Economics touches every single one of those. And it's really fascinating, for those of you who know uh, the news, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates just recently gave a really incredible testimony before a congressional hearing on reparations, be because... Race relations and our move for racial justice has economic implications, and we should consider and think deeply about what those economics are. How we spend our money, how we set up our economic system has great impact on our environment and what that means for the future of our planet and sustainability, etc., um, economics are a part of why people are even migrating and leaving, not just war and violence, but economics as well. Um, the Syrian refugee crisis was uh, spurred on in part by the droughts and the ability to even raise crops, and et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, gender inequality. Uh, for anybody watching the U.S. Women's National Team World Cup besides my... Yeah, okay, so that was just for my wife. That's all. Okay, some of you who are watching... Part of the discussion that's happening there uh, is gender equality when it comes to economic uh, systems. Economics is at the heart of what it means to know what is right and what is good and what is just. Economics is a part of that. This is the other thing we are going to say. I mentioned and briefly alluded to this before. We have talked uh, extensively about the theology that many, Christ many Christians have inherited, which is that the ultimate idea, the ultimate thing that we're about is to get people into heaven after they die. And so because of that, what, what happens here on earth is really secondary, is really 
not as important as making sure that their souls are saved and they get into heaven. This comes into play a lot for those of you who have uh, perhaps had conversations or heard news about humanitarian efforts by nonprofit organizations going into places that are um, underserved and trying to do good works. Oftentimes, Christians, um, because of this particular theology, will say, well, but are they doing the real work, which is making sure that they're saved first, and, you know, the food and the water and the clothing, all that's kind of secondary, it's tacked on. So what we are going to say is we're going to be very consistent with who we are and who we've been over the past several years, which is to say that heaven and earth are not two separate realms according to the way of Jesus. What is the way of Jesus is bringing those two together so that what we experience here on earth is what is in heaven. This is what we call the kingdom of God, where God's rule and his reign actually live right here. We could also call this the way of Jesus. And in fact, you actually don't have to go very far in your text to understand that this concept is deeply woven in to the full thrust of our biblical narrative. In Revelation chapter 18, for those of you who know Revelation, there's this vision for what is to come, what what ultimately Jesus' movement is trying to do in this world. But because it's written in a certain genre that's saying we are hoping and working to bring that reality here, now, and close, you can kind of get a sense of what it is that's actually at ultimate value for people who are followers of Jesus. And in this apocalyptic revelation, the writer John says there's going to be some people who are not happy when Jesus comes. There's going to be some people who are not going to be on board with the coming of the kingdom. Who are those people? The merchants of the earth weep and mourn since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, scarlet, all kinds of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, slaves, and literally the souls of human beings. What a list that is at the very end of our story, which is the culmination of this work of what it means to bring forward the kingdom. Those people who make their living off of the sale of goods and services, and especially off the sale of human beings and the souls of other beings, those are the ones who are going to weep. My friends, I'm going to propose to you, this is an economic vision. It's not just a spiritual one, even for how we might even define that word spiritual. It is an on-the-ground, very real, tangible, goods and services, economic vision for who we are. We are also going to say that the Jesus tradition, not only in the future but actually pulls in deeply woven prophetic voices in and against economic structures all throughout our text. I'm going to give you just a sampling. Do you know how hard it was to narrow this list down? In the book of Zechariah, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. We often stop there. Kindness and mercy. Kindness and I'm so kind and I'm really merciful. But what does kindness and mercy mean? Do not oppress the widow. Who's the widow? Somebody who is in a socioeconomic system that no longer can support her life and sustainability. 
The orphan, the one who doesn't have a family structure that's allowing them to thrive and to live and to eat and to have food and shelter and clothes. The alien, the somebody who's on the outside or the poor, someone who is literally physically in an economically lower class. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. The prophetic voice, it was like when you start thinking about this, it, it, it just kind of screams off the page that the prophetic voice is an economic vision. Many of us know this Micah 6, 8 passage. It's a very famous one. He has told you, O mortal, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. It's a beautiful phrase. We, I mean, if, I'm not into bumper stickers, but if you wanted to put this on a bumper sticker, this would be a good one, or a screensaver, or a tattoo, or I don't know, whatever you want to do. I shouldn't say tattoo at Spark, though. There's been a lot of tattoos. Uh, two verses later, two verses later, can I tolerate wicked scales and a bag of dishonest weights? Even woven within the idea of justice and righteousness is the idea of how you even do commerce with one another. Ezekiel chapter 16. This is the famous Sodom and Gomorrah passage, which has all sorts of crazy implications. This was the guilt of your sister Sodom, Ezekiel says. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did abominable things before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. We get caught up in the Genesis story of the Sodom and Gomorrah, thinking it's all about sexual ethics and values. You push forward to the prophetic vision of Ezekiel, you see it's very clearly an economic value. And what's fascinating is that the word for outcry is used in both passages, as well as used in Isaiah. It's actually used several times throughout the Old Testament. And when it is used, outcry is hardly ever used to just simply mean a moral offense. You were talking sexually. It's used a couple times. Many times it's used to describe somebody who has been economically oppressed. And so what seems to be happening with this Ezekiel passage in commentary and in trying to share what this Genesis passage is about is that both sexual immorality and material selfishness stem from the same self-indulgent attitudes. And that seems to be the driving sin. Selfishness, you don't care about the poor, you don't care about the oppressed, you don't care about the people that you take advantage of. And so the conflation of those two seems to be what is happening, which is why, now, I mean, that in and of itself is a whole, you got to spend some time thinking about then why have we have uh, created such a moral system that is just about one rather than about the other. Virtually every story of our faith from Genesis to Revelation assumes an economic background and reality and speaks to an economic redemption, hope, and justice. Virtually every story. So this is why we want to do economics. What, and again, not economic theory. That's for those of you who study it. Um, and for those of you who want to pontificate about socioeconomic theory within a political sphere, within, you know, 21st century America, all of that kind of stuff. But when you do just the plain, simple, historical study and just reading of the text... You cannot read this text and you cannot read our stories without seeing economic systems and values leap off the page. What we do economically matters. I'm going to propose that this is hard for us because for those of us who live in Western, Westernized and American thinking, it is really hard for us to engage in this particular way because, partly because of our wealth. 
partly because we have it so good, even though we're going to deal with the challenges of Silicon Valley. There was a professor that did this amazing study. He handed to all of his seminary students the story of the prodigal son and then asked them to recount the story and all of the elements within that story and what really was the main thing that caused the the prodigal son who went off into a far distant country to repent and return back home. Let me ask you, this will be fun, what was that reason? What was the purpose? What was the thing that the text says that caused him to want to come back home? He lost all his money. money. Why? Because he was partying. He was, right. He was, he was really irresponsible. Great passage for how to keep all of your teenagers in check. Do not party. Do not waste your wealth. He gave this exact same question to a bunch of Russian seminary students back, I can't remember the exact era, just a couple decades ago, and asked them the exact same question. 80-something percent of them said it wasn't partying, it wasn't spending, it was famine. Because they had just come out of an entire famine that had happened in Russia, and it was deeply impressed upon their minds. And sure enough, when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. We do not think economically part of the reason might be because we don't have to. And what I'm going to encourage us and challenge us to do is to think maybe economics is much more woven into this entire system of faith than we are aware of, and we should give it some more attention. And it's going to be, I will tell you, this is going to be really hard because if we are in a position of wealth, Man, does Jesus have some things to say about rich people and the hold that it has upon us. Some other things that we're going to say is that the history of our faith actually includes a whole bunch of economic systems. This is Jonathan. He is a Hasmonean. It's a guy who took over and beat the Syrians out of Israel during the second century BC. This is before Jesus. And we have a little bit of writing in a book about what did he do to restore the land of Israel to the people in a proper place. What did he do? He abolished the collecting of a third of the grain and a half of the fruit of the trees that I should receive. I release them from this day and henceforth. In other words, one of the things that this leader did, this Hasmonean leader did, to restore redemption to the people of Israel is he got rid of the 83% agrarian tax. Did you ever think about, I mean, we think about fruits and vegetables as fruits and vegetables. To them, it was money. And so just with this one quote, we have a sense 83% of all of your income is now being given over to the religious rulers, the elite, the government authorities. It's really, really incredible. Josephus, who's a first century historian, lists in addition to the agrarian tax, a trade tax, a market tax, a transit tax, a port tax, a city access tax, a labor tax, a temple tax, an animal and a material tax on top of the agrarian tax that was waged. And Hansen and uh, Oakman write in their book, Palestine in the Time of Jesus, taxation in Roman Palestine was extractive. That is designed to assert elite control over agrarian production. Their major impact was to remove most goods from the control and enjoyment of most people. The terms extraction, redistribution, tribute, notice that word tribute because that comes into a Jesus story later on, 
reflect the political nature of these distributive mechanisms. All of these terms emphasize that the benefits in ancient economy flowed upward to the advantages of the elites. There are some uh, historians that suggest that the people of the first century, especially in the lower classes, were being taxed not just 83, but up to 90 or 95 percent of your income. Do not tell me that economics is not a huge background to the stories that we read. And part of the reason why, if you read your Gospels carefully, a lot of it is about how you handle money and what money does and wealth. So, this is the other thing we're going to say. The reason why all of that historical piece is important because it's not just about money. It's actually about something bigger than that for us. And Jesus is going to speak into that, which is what makes him so brilliant. Because we often think about money as just merely a transaction or some sort of Excel spreadsheet. But money actually points to something bigger. It points to values, ethics, incentives, political will. And it points to the real cost of how we treat one another. How we think about our economic systems, how we think about the way of Jesus, how we think about wealth and what it means to be a follower of Jesus actually has deep implications for what we think about what is valuable and important. There is a connection between how we behave economically and what we think is actually valuable. There's this very classic story of an Israeli daycare who was uh, experiencing some challenges because parents you irresponsible lot you, were showing up late to pick up all the children. And so the daycare decided uh, that we are going to now charge the parents. Whereas before, what would parents say? I'm so sorry, I apologize, making up excuses, had to face the person, etc., picking up the child late and then went on the way. To try to fix the problem, they imposed a fine. If you are more than 10 minutes late on picking up your child, we are going to now charge you X number of dollars or shekels extra. What happened? No. They showed up later. More of them showed up later. And they showed up, and and, and multi, not just a few showed up late, but many of them showed up late. Because what happened is that the study, those who did the study recognized the cost of showing up late was relational. And as soon as I put a number on it, the relationship didn't matter. And now I can pay for assuaging my guilt. And if you actually did the math, the amount that they were paying per hour for the original agreement was actually far more than what they were paying for the fine. So in other words, they recognized that this fine was actually just simply a price. The price of my guilt, easy shell it out. Now I can show up not just 15 minutes later, but I can show up half an hour later. This story illustrates something very pernicious, however, about what happens when we think about money in this particular way that I think is directly tied to what Jesus is talking about. This is something that Darren said to me that I thought was so insightful. The price is actually not the cost, because what happened is that they replaced the relationship with a number. And when that relationship is replaced with the number, we've lost something. It has cost us dearly. Whatever I do with my money actually has implications for what I think is valuable, what I think is important. Very quickly, if I can, I'd like to share with you one big teaching of Jesus from Luke chapter 12, point out a couple things, and leave you to consider carefully how Jesus' teachings, in light of all of this, could spur us on to living more in his way. 
Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Friend, who sent me to be a judge or arbiter over you? Notice this is somebody who has wealth, who has inheritance. So this is somebody of means. And he said to them, Take care, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Man, Jesus just goes right for the gut. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Then he told them a parable. Notice we're shifting to a parable. The land of a rich man produced abundantly. And he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build a larger one. Sounds like capitalism to me. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. That was bad, pastor. I shouldn't have said that. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. He said then to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more important than food, and body is more important than clothes. Consider the ravens, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? If then you're not able to do even that small thing, why are you worrying about the rest? Consider the lilies. They don't toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes them, the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little trust? of little faith. And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom and these things. All the provisions, all the food, all the clothing will be given to you as well. This, I I think, is a really beautiful economic vision for how to live. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give alms. Be generous in your righteousness towards other. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. And this is the culminating phrase of this entire section. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Oh my goodness. There's some phenomenal visionary elements in this passage when he's talking about a rich man who's worried about his inheritance, about how much he's going to get, the rebuke that he says against the fundamental ethic, which is about greed, about wanting more, and about an ultimate vision of pursuing the kingdom, pursuing God's values to only see even all of that other stuff that you are striving for and worrying about actually come to pass. So this economics, according to this passage, matters because your heart matters. This has always been about the heart. I know that sounds totally cliche, but it's true. Very much like the Israeli daycare. Where our hearts are is important. And economics can sometimes get in the way of that. The good news is personal, spiritual, communal, and economic. We have to talk about economics because it is good news. And then according to this particular story, there's something amazing going on here, that according to the way of Jesus, 
This way of living is generous and regenerative. Seek first the kingdom, and all of this will be added. Something within that is about pursuing something higher, much more about the value of community, much more about the value of compassion and righteousness, generosity, giving, caring, that regenerates itself. Oh, there's a whole whole idea even within regenerative economics that I think is really important that I think Jesus is speaking to there. And the other thing, because he's speaking to a wealthy person, the good news is actually good news for the poor, but it has to be good news for the poor when it becomes good news for the rich. It has to be the same good news. Those two go hand in hand. And because of this particular phrase, I would offer you this one additional piece. Don't just put your money where your mouth is, put your money where you want your heart to be. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. My friends, I'm going to encourage us to consider to live out the way of Jesus and to live this way economically. This is just an introduction. There's a whole bunch more that we could talk about if you're interested in pursuing different ways in which that could be lived out. But I hope this is enough introduction to set for us at least a, a movement to say, economics matters because my heart matters. It's deeply woven into the prophetic voice, into the future vision, and it's everywhere on all the things that matter to people who follow Jesus. I want to close with a video um, by Questscope, which is one of our partner organizations. Kurt Rhodes, who's spoken here before, has, I think, exemplified this in a pretty amazing way. By pursuing the way of Jesus, he has reaped an economic vision for his organization that is really unlike any other in the refugee camp where they are meeting. So here's his video from the 30th anniversary video that I just uh, got this week. Um, please uh, take a listen and enjoy um, some of his thoughts and reflections. Not all the problems in the world are problems for us. For 30 years, we've walked alongside people who live in risk. Their lives suddenly devastated by war or slowly stifled by poverty. These people, the refugee, the person at the bottom, are not the source of problems. They're the source of solutions. People living on the fraying edges of life have to act in order to survive. They have ideas and first-hand knowledge of the problems they face because they're living inside the circumstances. When marginalized people become true partners with viewpoints, aspirations, and skills, they are no longer passive recipients, and co-creation becomes a real option, and real changes can take root and grow. Standing with people dismissed and forgotten changes us, too. We all change when we put the last first. For 30 years, we put this belief into action. And now, we have a new generation of young leaders living out this belief and putting it into action 
all over the world. So that to me is the really most exciting thing of doing this for 30 years, because there's 30 more to come. I hope you picked up on a couple of the things that the co-creation is possible when you start to live this way, when you start to believe in the resources that are in front of you and not to see other people, especially people who uh, are, are underserved or uh, are refugees or migrants or whatever, that they are the source of the solutions, that there is a resource there, that how you think about all a lot of the NGOs that work there only see these people as a sink of their economics. I have to pour money in. And what Kurt has done brilliantly is to rethink the economic situation and to see every single person in that uh, in his camp and in, in his ministry as a resource. It, it's completely flipped the script. Um, expenses are far lower. The engagement of the people that he's engaged with is higher. Effectiveness is human-centered. It's not just aid. It's actually regenerative of humanity. Uh, the reputation is excellent. He's in Jordan and Syria as well as in Germany because of the influx there. And the work that he is doing is replicated. And I will tell you that there is about... Um, I think if I remember, there's about 30 to 40 NGOs, non-governmental organizations in the Zatari refugee camp in Jordan. This is the only one that opens early and stays late, that provides regenerative ministries that is constantly renewing itself because of the human resources that are there. And they do it far with far less money. How much money that they're saving I looked at their annual report in the budget, and it's just astounding to me for the thousands of people that they serve and the dollar per person as a result of thinking very differently by pursuing the way of Jesus, by pursuing the kingdom. It's an incredible, incredible vision and has very real-life implications for how we engage with this particular work. My friends, I hope through this series, as we talk about what does it mean to live in Silicon Valley and what does it mean to live as a follower of Jesus, that something will change for your personal finances and maybe you'll think a little bit more, again, without a pressure from us to say this is what, this is what you need to give, but that you will think critically about how you are living as a follower of Jesus in that. But in addition to that, it is my hope that we would also possibly consider what would it look like if mass amounts of people in a lot of different positions of government and economics and finances. I've talked to the young college students who are here, wherever you go, when you start thinking about the way of Jesus in economic systems, in government, in politics, and in retail, in all of that stuff, what could that do to transform and change the very real life that is happening on the ground? And so I hope that through this series, as we dig a little bit more into the teachings of Jesus, and we learn from some people who are doing some amazing work just in our backyard that we are challenged to live and to think this way because, because we are trying to live the way of Jesus, and to do so means we have to think economically about that. That's your introduction, and I hope that you join us for the rest of the series. I invite uh, Junior and the team to come on forward, and we'll transition into communion, which is a time for us to reflect upon the way of Jesus giving up, literally giving up his life so that we could have this abundance of life, not an abundance of things. I forgot to mention that in that Luke 12 passage, that same word abundance is the abundance of things versus the abundance of life. And so I hope that as you take communion, as you take the bread and the juice, you take it and dip it in, that you are reminded that this beautiful, generous, 
regenerative life of Jesus is made available for all, and that we are inspired once again to pursue first his kingdom and his righteousness, and then all the things that we worry about, that we pursue, that we think we need because of greed or pride or selfishness, those things just fade away, and we begin to pursue his kingdom and his righteousness. On the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. As we sing, my friends, you're invited to the table to partake in communion. If you are able, please stand for a benediction. To all of our sparkers, may we together, my friends, be freed from the chains and the bondage of greed and pride and selfishness and gaining more and more at the expense of others. And may we also be freed and liberated from the crushing poverty and worry that comes from just barely making it. And may we all be embraced by the way of Jesus, the love of our Heavenly Father, to take care of us just as he takes care of the lilies. In his name, amen. Friends, have a great week.